in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my captivating host, Patrick Pister. Oh, Mark, I had to wake up for this one. I've, uh, I forgot what all my buttons do, and <laughs> yeah, it's been and, a while. And audience, we're doing a first. Uh, we, we have all three of us are remote, so it's a bit of a technology challenge. We'll see how it comes out, this show comes out. But Patrick, we have a guest today, don't we? We do. We have Russell Treat. He's the CEO of Interact and the host of the Pipeliners podcast, which I am really excited to start listening to now that I know about it. Russell, uh, welcome. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. This I'm really excited about the opportunity to talk about safety. Yeah, and it's kind of cool to have a fellow podcaster on our podcast, huh, Patrick? Yeah, somebody that knows the knows the ins and outs and is recording locally, so the audio quality should be top-notch on this episode. Yeah, and speaking <laughs> of top-notch, before we get into your story, Russell, hey, if you want to support this show, do us a favor. Just leave us a review on iTunes. It takes all of a minute, and it's the number one way to help support the show and keep things moving. So, Russell, I, I got to ask you, you've been in the pipeline industry for a very long time, haven't you? Yes, yes. We measure it in decades. <laughs> <laughs> like pipelines. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And so how did you get started in this crazy industry? You know, that's kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting conversation. So I'm a, I'm a civil engineer by education and I, I spent some time in the military with respect to you guys. I was in the air force. So, you know, I was sleeping in the air conditioned barracks where you guys were uh, camping in tents in the dirt. If you were fortunate enough to have a tent, have a tent. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So when I got out, of, when I got out of the military, I looked at a lot of different industries. I worked for about three years in cryogenics, which is liquefied oxygen and nitrogen and CO2 and that kind of stuff. And then about age 29, I started my first business and about 18 months in, I sold that into a group called Software Marketing. And what we did is we commercialized technology. We would look for what we called a device, a device being something that was built and a customer was using it and referring it to their friends, but not a product, meaning no team behind it, no marketing plan, no roadmap, all that kind of stuff. And we commercialized technologies. And I found out what I really liked was oil and gas. That's the, I liked the business. I liked the people. We, I did some work in uh, around coil tubing, did some other work around compressor analysis, just really liked the business and made a decision that I wanted to get full time into oil and gas. And I, I left that company and joined a company called BMP Energy Systems, which was a software company doing measurement. And that's where I started to get into the oil and gas business. And, you know, that led to, you know, the focus on pipelining. So that's kind of the genesis, how it got there. It took me a little longer than most, but I landed in the business, you know, as quick as I could get here. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So the cool thing is because you and I spend a little bit of time together is y'all are heavy. We're fast forwarding to now, but y'all are heavy into pipeline controls, aren't y'all? Yeah, exactly. We we focus on software and solutions for the pipeline control center. So all the stuff that people would typically refer to as SCADA and a bunch of other tools related to logbooks and shift handover and workload analysis and fatigue management, things that are related to regulatory requirements that impact the pipeline control center. 
And then, of course, because we're doing that, uh, we also work in things like leak detection and just pipeline safety in general. Yeah, well, everything you do, if you think about it, touches pipeline safety, right? All those controls, if something, if some valve opens somewhere where it shouldn't or it shouldn't, doesn't open when it should, people can get hurt. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And, of course, you know, we tend to think about, I'm always a little cautious when you talk about all the bad things that can happen when, you know, things don't go the way they're planned, you know, but the pipeline business is, is really, when you look at its track record, it's really quite a safe business. And there, there has always been and continues to be a big focus on safety. And if you think about pipelines, I mean, unlike process facilities, they can be located in neighborhoods. Oh yeah. And and the thing is a lot of responsibility. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. A lot of people don't realize that a pipeline is the safest way to move anything, safest way for people, safest way for the environment, not just hydrocarbons, but anything. Yeah. And, and by an order of magnitude or more versus the alternatives, you think the, you know, the alternatives, I've, I truck it, I put it in a rail car, I put it on a barge. Pipelines are by far safer than any of those alternatives. And then the other thing is the pipeline industry as a whole, at least here in the U.S. and in Europe, I don't know about the rest of the world, but it has a very integrated, very strong culture of safety. Yeah, you know, it's one of the things we talk because, you know, being a technologist myself, you know, we're always trying to push new ideas to the pipeline operators and the pipeline, the pipeline people. I mean, they're very technically savvy, but they're also very risk averse. And that's for good reason, right? I mean, change presents risk, right? So they, yes. you know, they're running these systems. Some of these systems they've been running for, you know, decades. There's pipelines in the U.S. that are 60 and 70 years old. And one of the things that people don't understand about pipelines, you know, you, you think about, well, metal rusts, right? Because if I park a car in the backyard and I don't do anything about it, it rusts. But these pipelines are, that they're, they're maintained. You know, they have cathodic protection. They have coating systems and, you know, it, it can be demonstrated that these pipelines will work for a very, very long time if they're properly maintained. Yeah, there's actually a role called pipeline integrity. And that's all those guys, those men and women do is they make maintain the integrity of that pipeline. And then the other thing I think that's is right. really cool is if something's in doubt, they shut it down until they fix it. They don't keep running if they think there's a problem. They shut it down. They go ahead and lose that revenue to go fix whatever the problem is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right, Mark. I mean, you know, the, these operators, people who operate pipelines, they understand their fiduciary responsibility to the public and the environment. They take it very, very seriously. So, you know, there's a lot of professionals and they're, 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 really, they're really aware of the responsibility they have as pipeline operators. Russell, we touched on a little bit just, to, just a little bit ago about the, the infrastructure and getting these pipelines built. Can you, can you give our audience kind of a time frame of, you know, when a new pipe needs to get get installed with the regulatory, the build, the, the approvals. Uh, I mean, we're not just talking, you need a pipeline, we'll turn it on tomorrow. This is a, you know, like we said, a decades long process to get something built. Can be. The, it, what's interesting about that is the construction process is actually the shortest piece of the whole timeline. It's the regulatory approval process that can really be difficult. And if, if you think about that, you know, when you run a long line uh, pipeline and it's going across multiple states and multiple cities, you know, all of these, there's, and even across an international border, you think about the number of governmental agencies that have to be involved in permitting a pipeline. It, it, that's the tough part is getting through the regulatory approval process. 
has that process got easier, more difficult? I mean, everybody with the big, big button or the Keystone XL pipeline, but the smaller pipelines, is it easier for a pipeline to get installed now with a regulatory environment or has it become slower and more, more cumbersome in recent years? Well, if you go back and you look at the first half dozen executive orders that Trump wrote, Three of them were about pipelines and about removing the regulatory constraints. And one of the things that's been done, there's actually now a special office. And man, I wish I could remember. I did an episode on this in the Pipeliners podcast following the uh, API Pipeline Conference. But there's now a special office in the government that works with pipelines and others that are trying to get things permitted that have complex permitting processes where they're working to expedite and streamline the overall approval process. So they're, they're trying to put predictability into the regulatory approval process. So that's a big change since the change in the administration. So I would say that overall, the, the regulatory process has streamlined. It's not like there's less things to do. It's just that the agencies are being more responsive. Okay. Well, and if you live and work in these areas where a pipeline is getting put into place, you know the alternative is, as Mark said, trucking it somewhere. And if anybody's been through the Permian Basin in the last month or two or six months, that that infrastructure is pretty much stretched to the max. They need more pipelines to get put in, but it's just a matter of time. That's right. That's right. I mean, the Permian, you know, every time there's a boom with a new oil and gas play that, you know, that first you start producing and then you start having to build the infrastructure and the infrastructure, you know, that what the, what's called takeaway, you know, all the pipe, all the tanking and processing and pipelining, that could take quite a while to get built out. Yeah, and it's it's also has to not only pass all the regulatory stuff like we just talked about, it also has to make economic sense. That's why it's until the need is there, the constraint is there, there's lack of transportation. It's not pipeline until there's enough need that it makes economic sense for a pipeline company to go build a pipeline. And as long as our politicians don't get involved like what happened with Keystone, it usually works pretty well. So, Russell, I kind of kind of want to back you up a little bit. So there's something that you talk about that I find fascinating, that Patrick and I both find fascinating. You call it POEMS. What does POEMS stand for? Oh, so POEMS is our software product, it, and it stands for Pipeline Operations Excellence Management System. And I guess that, you know, that, that kind of raises the question, right? What is operations excellence? That's exactly where I was going with that. Patrick and I are big fans. So what is <laughs> operational excellence? <laughs> well, so I've listened to you guys talk about this on the on the on your podcast before, and and I think my answer would be similar. But I I think simply stated, you know, in, in pipelining, a lot of the operators talk about triple zero. So that's no injuries, no incidents, no releases, zero zero zero. So that's a part of operations excellence. The other part of operations excellence is on schedule, on spec. So operations effectiveness is everything you're doing to deliver your commitments on spec and on schedule without incident, without injury, and without release. That's operations excellence. I like how you brought the business side of that because a lot of people skip over that. And I think I've been guilty of that myself too. But you also have to think about hitting your, the milestones, right? Your budgets, your delivery dates, all that. All that is part of operational excellence. Well, right. I mean, if we didn't have if we didn't have business objectives to hit, we wouldn't need safety because we wouldn't be doing anything. That's right. <laughs> well, and how and how do those two how do those two balance? Because with pipeline, we stated earlier that if there's an issue, pipelines don't have a problem turning off the pumps and and fixing it. But when those pumps aren't running, there's not product flowing through the line. 
that's money not going in their pockets. So where is the balance when there when there are incidents, small, medium, large, business versus that safe operation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It, it's not really an easy question to answer because I think each operator kind of has to answer that question for themselves. But the whole idea of operations excellence is to you know, have a philosophy about how I operate that goes to how I accomplish my objectives and how I balance it with safety. So I'll give you an example. So when, when we put in place operating plans for a pipeline control room, we have a philosophy that we ad- advocate. It goes around this, an idea which we call permission to operate. So permission to operate simply stated means this. I retain permission to operate so long as I understand what's going on. So, you know, we tend to think about shutting down when we get a clear indication of a problem, an alarm or a pressure drop or something like that. But sometimes these systems go to places that we don't understand what's going on in the process. And, and that's really where most of the most severe the incidents occur, where the incidents with the largest consequences occur. It's where, for whatever reason, given change being made in the system or operating condition, I don't really understand what's going on and I keep operating anyways. So what we establish is that this idea of permission to operate where the controller, the person, the chair in front of the screens with the responsibility, when they don't understand, they have a fiduciary responsibility to make the process safe. Now, I say make this process safe versus shut down because they're not exactly the same thing. It might be that I just need to lower flow rates and lower operating pressures to be safe. And that might be better than shutting down. You know, if I just shut down pumps and I close quick close valves, I can create hydraulic transients that cause me more problems than if I did something different. But that's a long way to say that, you know, permission to operate is the idea is I continue to operate so long as I understand. When I lose understanding, I make the systems the system safe until I understand. And has has this ability to understand your situation gotten easier with the the software that's coming to play versus taking the human element out? Just a little bit of my background, shipping product offshore, you know, all of our systems were manual. That means manual sounding tapes and manual opening and closing valves. So the times that I didn't understand what was happening was usually user error. You had a problem with the sounding tape or something was, wasn't right. So you had a couple of minutes where you're trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And I've never had to use software to, to help me with this stuff. So has it, has it simplified the process or has it made it more complex? Do the guys understand how to use the software to understand their operating parameters? Yeah, I, again, it's a great question. The way I would have to answer that is, is it depends. And, and let me try to unpack what I mean by that a little bit. Because I'm getting more data than I used to because data, you know, instrumentation, communications, software, all of that's getting less expensive. So I'm getting more and more data. So from the standpoint of I have more available to me, yes, it's getting, it's getting better. The flip side, however, is I have to take all this data and I got to contextualize it in a way that's meaningful. Right. If you think, yeah, I, I, I tend to use the airplane cockpit as an example for this a lot. If somebody's telling me your altitude is this, your fuel is this, your, ele- you know, your rate of climb is this, they're telling me, they're telling me, they're telling me, or I'm just reading the numbers. That's much different than an effective graphical representation where I can just scan it and understand. So I think the big challenge from a safety perspective as we implement more technology is how do we contextualize the information visually so that it's easy to interpret and use for making decisions. 
how far away are we from completely removing the human element with, with that? So the, the data is being captured and, and interpreted. Are we a few decades away from that interpretation being pulled out and letting the software just run the system? Or will that uh, will there always be the human interaction? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I, I actually took a real deep dive for about nine months into artificial intelligence and Internet of Things and you know all the buzzword, buzzwords du jour, if you will. And I came away, it's interesting, I went to the Intellect Conference, which is the Energy Telecommunications Conference a year ago, I was on the board, and I got asked probably 20 times, what's the big deal with data analytics and Internet of Things? We've been doing this for 30 years. And to some degree, that's true. The math, the algorithms, the approaches are not new. We've been doing them for a long time. However, I don't think we're ever going to get the human completely out of the process. So AI is really good at seeing something it's seen before. It's not very good at making sense out of something it's never seen before. That's where the humans come in. So, you know, humans still do a better job of analytical analysis, you know, and and gut feel. We don't have AI that does gut feel something in my guts telling me this isn't right. And that's an important element in any kind of operation safety is experience teaches you things that you just know in your person that you can't necessarily articulate and trying to get that kind of knowledge into a machine. I don't know that we'll ever get there. So Russell, let me come at that at a little bit different tech. You know, our industry has a aging workforce. A lot of guys my age are retiring. A lot of young people coming in our industry, new younger workforce. Does the technology help the younger workforce stay on top of things easier than than the way it was done in the past? Or does the technology get in the way because it's something brand new they have to learn? Oh, I think it makes it easier, particularly for the young guys. I mean, the young guys have this, you know, they just grew up with this technology. I mean, guys like guys my age, and I turned 60 here in a couple of months, you know, I grew up and I was building computers on my kitchen table when I was in the military. That was my hobby, Right. And soldering them together and booting them up and, you know, programming them from scratch, right? Way back in the day. Nowadays, these guys are growing up with technology. So they're just used to using technology and they have a different level of comfort with it and access to it than our experience. So I I think technology and the way that the younger generation, I mean, guys, you know, 20 years or so younger than me are engaging with that is really, really good. I think the challenge is more the hands-on mechanical how does it feel experience that that's getting lost? Yeah. And I agree with you. It's, you know, a lot of these uh, young people come to our industry have great educational background. They've never picked up a wrench. They've never been to a well site. They've never seen somebody weld, you know, and it's, there's, there's places for all that experience. It's, it's one of the things as an industry I'm concerned about, cause I see coming at us like a freight train, this lack of talent and it's, and it's a huge problem. And yeah, I know that upstream and the service companies laid off a bunch of people last couple of years, but I'm telling you the entire industry soon will not have enough people to want to come work in it. And I don't know what we're going to do as we're getting there. I mean, technology definitely plays a part in this. Um, I like some of the stuff that you're doing. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that y'all are doing actually doesn't replace people, but it allows you to run effective operations uh, safely and efficiently with less people. I think that's pretty cool. Well, that's absolutely right. And the other thing you can do is we can, a lot of the things that we have done historically that are just kind of repetitive tasks, the need for that's gone away. I mean, there is no need in this day and age to run a guy around in a pickup truck with a clipboard taking numbers down to fax to a central office. That's, That's an anachronism. Anybody that's doing that's living in the past. 
And there are still people out there doing that. Oh, I know there. Uh, I wasn't so going to say anything. That, I- <laughs> they're still out there. And, you know, a lot, what's interesting, in, in at least in the pipelining world, you know, that's the fallback position. If, if you know, if, if everything goes away technology-wise, then we're going to put people out on trucks and we're going to, you know, we're going to run the pipeline that way. So... Well, and I think one, I think one of the new risks we're falling into, Russell, is you, you mentioned, you know, these kids grew up and, you know, with technology and, and games and, and just how to use it. I'm worried that we're making, uh, we're having a generation of users come through and not like you did building a computer on your, on your table and learn how to code it. Everything's so simple nowadays that are the, are the technicians coming out or the, you know, the guys using the system, are they able to troubleshoot? Are they able to fix an issue when it, when it comes up? Because there's still a lot of bugs in the software, you know. The oil field is a little slower to adopt these things. So, you know, are we putting more users out into the field or the guys that you're seeing use the software? You know, do they have a you know, a sharp mind? Are they able to do that troubleshooting? Well, when you talk about the technicians and the mechanics, right, those guys understand and they get it and they, you know, they know that they need to figure out what's wrong. I think it's the other users, right? The management people, the accounting people, you know, the, the, the regulatory people that tend to get thrown in. If you give me a number on a computer screen, then the number's right. It's the, it's the assumption that everything's correct rather than, you know, intelligently and persistently questioning yeah, is that number right? How do you know? Yeah. Also, I think there's a bit of a need for more the ability to think strategically. You know, I'm guilty of this myself, right? I catch myself sometimes open up the Weather Channel app on my phone to see what the temperature is outside instead of just walking outside. You know, so so I think that ability to think strategically is something we need to continue to foster in this this industry because when everything else doesn't work, your ability to think your way through a situation could be, could be a lifesaver. Well, and that's going to be the most important. That's the most important part of as we go forward is the people that are working in the business. They do need to understand systems, and they need to understand they need to understand their systems and how they work, and be able to think through those systems. That's I think that's a really key point. Yeah, and Russell, we uh, we don't get a lot of pipeline people on this show, so we've talked about pipeline. We talk about pipeline controls. Talk about a future workforce. But when you start thinking about the pipeline industry, let's just say here in the U.S., the pipeline industry here in the U.S. There's a need for more pipelines. I mean, their pipeline industry is building more pipelines literally every day, which means there's the potential chance of more people having something bad happen to them. So when you think about the industry, because you've been in it for a long time, you think about it, say, 20 years ago, 10 years ago versus now, we've actually moved the needle a very long way. It's, it's, it's gotten really kind of rare that somebody gets hurt anymore. And I think that's an awesome thing. Do you think that trend is going to continue? Yeah, in fact, I do. There's an interesting initiative in the pipeline space that's relatively new called the uh, Safety Management System Initiative. It's kind of it's kind of like SIS, but more as a program for pipeline operators. And it's not a regulatory requirement. It's a, it's an API guideline, but a number of the big operators are adopting this approach. And I think that approach is going to cause pipeline operators to just get better. Because now they're going to be looking at everything I'm doing as a program. You know, what am I training? How am I training it? What is the competencies I require of my people? Do they have those competencies? What are my policies and procedures? How do they relate to best practices? What technologies am I implementing? What's my integrity management program? All this stuff. And I begin to look at that holistically so that I can take my management resources, attention, my money and dedicate it where I'm going to get the best return in safety on my investment. And, you know, safety is just a different way of looking at operations. 
right? It's it's kind of safety and operations are like two different sides of the same coin. Yep, you're preaching to the choir here. We're right there with you. <laughs> uh, you're preaching to the choir. I get the sermon twice every Sunday. On that same topic of the of the SMS, so at face value, just seeing one company has a good, strong system. They're using software. They've got you know good technicians. How are these policies, procedures helping when you have to cross companies? So you know the the products being shipped from one station, it's going down a pipeline, but it's going to somebody else's facility that has a different safety management system, may not have anything in place, has a power outage. How is there a software solution or a, a, a policy in place that these companies can rely on to make sure that when two or three or four companies that are shipping through the same pipeline to different facilities are all on the same page, that they know that product's coming, they know they have space to send product to, and they're not going to deadhead a pump or have a spill at the site? Well, okay, so there's two parts. I know that I, know that I kind of threw a lot in there, but... <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, so you're, you're asking, I, I'm going to frame the question maybe a little differently and, and kind of put it in the context. Well, how do these guys operate, right? So every pipeline from a point, you can think of a pipeline as a, as a bunch of pipes with ins and outs, right? So within my system, there's one and only one operator. Doesn't matter who's shipping on it. I'm just, I'm just putting product in the train car. I'm not running the train. There's only one guy running the train. So that's, that's kind of the first thing that, that people need to understand that's going on. The second thing is every place that I'm exchanging product, every one of those guys have interconnect agreements. Those interconnect agreements address things like, you know, operating pressures and, controls visibility across the site between the two parties. But there's always a very clear demarcation between where pipeline A ends and pipeline B begins. And the way we operate, the A and B don't have to have the same operating policy, philosophy, or even controls. Because the way we exchange the order to exchange product allows each of us to address that in our own way. That That's pretty question. cool. And, and I, I want to dive a little bit deeper because I've, you know, I've, I've seen firsthand scenarios where a, a facility that was receiving pipeline fluid lost power and couldn't pump out, but they couldn't, uh, whether they couldn't or they didn't have the ability to talk up the chain fast enough to let the, let the pumping station know that we had a power outage. So product kept coming. My understanding was they couldn't shut off the valve because they'd, they'd rather have a, a spill at the storage facility than a spill, you know, rupture on the pipeline. Well, yeah. In that scenario, I saw a, a a miscommunication between a receiving facility and the and the pumping unit weren't talking, weren't communicating. Are we are we getting past that? Are we are we beyond those type of incidents happening because companies are able to talk to each other in real time with with software, or are we still is there still a gap? Well, I'm certain there's gaps out there. There always is. I think that you you know for that kind of situation, you got to go all the way back to the hazard analysis that was done when these guys were figuring out how they're going to operate together. You know, that, that if, if they're able to pump into a facility and, you know, if they lose power, they have no way to handle the fluid without having a spill. That's a, that's a fundamental flaw. And that's a, if, you know, if you did an analysis of that, I almost, I almost would have to think that that goes all the way back to the original, original hazard analysis, or there was some change made after the original hazard analysis that caused that to be a possibility. But that's a, that's just a flat out failure in your safety planning, in my view. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that shouldn't, shouldn't have been caught be in the beginning. To, it shouldn't yeah, even be possible. And, and, and I hate to throw little, you know, anecdotal scenarios, but it's, you know, something that I observed. And I just wanted to see if you had seen 
you know, how things are. So, it, you know, it's good to hear that the, oh, yeah, it's, it, it should have been addressed at the planning stage. That's, that's good enough answer for me. Yeah. And I, what I see, what, what I'm seeing, and this is throughout the midstream and pipeline space, I see the, the safety processes and the hazard, you know, the hazard analysis processes, all of those to me seem to be tightening up. My experience is that, that people are casting a broader net when they're having those conversations, you know, they're not just doing it with themselves. They'll bring in, you know, their interconnect parties, they'll bring in outside consultants. They, they will bring in the resources necessary to, design the system for safe operations. And I see that being a very serious thing all the way up and down, you know, the management change in these, these operations companies that the executives take that, that upfront hazard, you know, assessment and implementation very seriously. If there's a failing, it's in the MOC over time and, and maintaining the level of integrity that was designed in upfront. Yeah, Russell, this has all been really great stuff. It's uh, we need to get you back on the show because we can talk about this for hours. But we're getting to the point where we can start winding the show down. We need to do the next next conversation on Russell's show. <laughs> we'll we'll go over to the pipeline. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So it's time for the Red Wing safety tip of the week. You have a safety tip for our audience, Russell? Oh my gosh! What? So here's 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 the thing that I think is always true. What's the most important safety tool? It's the thing between your ears. The most important thing you can do is think about every action before you take it. I think nearly every failure you see from a safety standpoint, and, and there's there's loads of really good YouTube videos out there from this kind of stuff now. It's like, oh my God, that guy's a knucklehead. You know, it's like if, if somebody <laughs> says, here, hold my beer, and then engages a task, that's not good. So my, my, my tip is think before you act. It's really, I mean, I know that's so simple and so, you know, kind of uninteresting, but I really think it, it all safety gets down to that. And if you don't yeah. know, ask. Yeah, so Russell, that's not non-interesting. We've had some senior HSE leaders from some extremely large companies say the exact same thing. So you're in good company with that one. But to Russell's point, there's a lot of good YouTube videos of people just, they think they're doing a good job. And I'm, I'm looking at glaring safety violations that could, you could catch them in a bind. So yeah, like Russell said, you situational awareness and, and using that thing between your ears is, is key. And if you need a place to store what's between your ears, what better place than a Red Wing offshore bag? I'm joking, folks. Don't cut your brain out and stick in a Red Wing offshore bag. But <laughs> if you need, if you would like one of these awesome bags, it's no purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. You simply go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in and we give away to one lucky winner a week. And speaking of lucky, if you haven't been paying attention, Oil and Gas Global Network, which is the home of this podcast and all of our other podcasts, uh, we start doing this network happy hour. It's become kind of a big deal. It's typically the end of the month, last Tuesday of the month here in Houston, Texas for now. We're looking at expanding that. But if you'd like to find out about that, plus be notified when new episodes of the show is released, really simple. Go to oilandgashse.com. Give us your information. We promise not to spam you. And we'll let you know as we do these really cool things. If you can also go to LinkedIn, join our Oil and Gas Global Network group. So OGGN on LinkedIn. We have a group for this podcast and all the rest. It's kind of like the uh, sister for all the podcasts. We have some good people doing some really good posting out there. Uh, which, by the way, if you're if you're posting stuff on our LinkedIn group and it never shows, that means it was deleted because it was spammy. Stop it. Then, Russell, I want to give a shout out to you and your show. If people wanted to find your podcast, where should they go? Well, you can go to iTunes, Podcaster, any of the 
you know, tools on your smartphone and just search for Pipeliners Podcast and it'll find it and you can subscribe. Uh, the website is pipelinerspodcast.com. So uh, just go to pipelinerspodcast.com if you want to find it through any web browser. And um, yep. you, we, we're easy to find. Yep. And if people wanted to reach out to you directly, I'm guessing LinkedIn is probably the best, best way. Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn to me directly on LinkedIn. My name is Russell Treat. The spelling's kind of unusual. It's R-U-S-S-E-L, just one L. And treat like it sounds, T-R-E-A-T. And send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I love to get them. And that, that's the best way for me to stay connected to people that are interested in these subjects. Yeah, and we'll put links in the show notes to all this so people don't need to be taking note. Uh, you heard me talk about the networking events we're doing. We're looking for sponsors. But Patrick, you know that we're filled up for the entire year. For, for for networking sponsors that's amazing it is there's a lot of year left yeah it's um so if you want to get on the boat for next year i will put a link to julie's uh, email address shoot julia note she'll take care of it. it's not much money so i think it's 455 dollars. some of the best spend you can possibly do and we have a good time uh russell it's been awesome having you on the show but like mark said we are we are thinking of expanding so yeah and and we'll talk about that in the future let's uh let's let's not open that bucket of worms yet because the phones are going to ring off the hook. Julie's going to quit. <laughs> but Russell, it was great having you on the show. We need to get you back on the show because I can tell you have a passion for this and so do we. And I'd like to really kind of go deeper. So we'll get you back on the show in the future. But thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's been great to talk to you guys. And uh, I think I'm going to take you up on the offer. I'm going to drag you over to the Pipeliners podcast. And um, we're going to capture some what can we do better around safety kind of conversations. I, I think that's always valuable. It is always valuable. We would love to do that. So, oh, Russell, one more thing. We didn't give you a chance. If people want to find out more about your company, where should they go? Well, so the best way to find that we actually have a couple of companies in Interact Energy Services Group. One is Gas Certification Institute, which we do measurement training. That's gascertification.com. And then Intersys Corporation is the company that does the pipeline control centers and the software for same and that's intersyscorp.com yeah so folks go check that out all right it's time to get out of here patrick ready to get out of here yeah let's do it all right folks don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great y'all be safe out there tune in next week for another exciting episode of red wings oil and gas hsc podcast a production of the global oil and gas network Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen in the field? So when I was in high school, I worked at a heavy equipment yard. So this yard would take uh, bulldozers and front end loaders and rock crushing equipment and tear it apart and rebuild it. And I was working one afternoon and they were loading out onto a flatbed, a bunch of rock crushing equipment. And I'm watching this cherry picker and I'm, I'm looking at the lines and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm young enough that I don't really know a lot, but I'm watching it and it doesn't feel right. And I saw one of the one of the pickup wires snap and it came across a guy like a like a whipped rope and 
you know, luckily it was winter and he was wearing a ton of heavy clothing. He got very badly injured, but he probably would not have survived if he hadn't been wearing a couple of heavy coats. So I saw that and I'll, I will tell you that that changed my life forever as it relates to safety. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm now I trust my gut. If I'm looking at something and it doesn't look right or it doesn't feel right, I do something different. Yeah. Uh, good story. <laughs> 